0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church Located in Charleston, South Carolina For more information about Grace on the Ashley Visit graceontheashley.org I want to invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to Luke The Gospel of Luke, chapter 9 We look in verses 10 through 17 this morning, finishing up what we began last week. Luke writes these words, he says, On their return, the apostles told him, that's Jesus, all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him. And he welcomed them, and he spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and he cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding village and countryside to find lodging and to get provisions. For we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish. Unless we're to go and buy food for all these people, for there were about 5,000 men And he said to his disciples Have them sit in groups of about 50 each And he did so And had them all sit down And taking the five loaves and the two fish He looked up to heaven And he said a blessing over them Then he broke the loaves Gave them to the disciples To set before the crowd And they all ate and were satisfied. What was left over was picked up twelve baskets of broken pieces." This is the word of the Lord for us today. We began looking at this famous miracle last Lord's Day together and we got the first piece of it and we'll finish looking at really the details of the miracle this morning in seminary, they call this, uh, what we're doing these two weeks, sausage-making preaching. It's what you're not supposed to do. And I am just confess that right out of the shoot. If you don't understand what that means, you've never seen sausage being made. Have you ever seen sausage being made? The link sausage is a machine and it just shoots it out till it gets long enough and you just chop it off when it's long enough and you start the next one the same way. Um, well, you're not really supposed to do that, but that's what we're doing. Um, if you weren't with us last week, we'll catch you up a little bit. We, we, we look at this, this remarkable miracle that Luke re- records for us here. Luke, along with the other three gospel writers, rec- records this. Really the only, the only miracle, apart from the resurrection, that all four gospel writers speak to. And Luke records it really in the shortest sort of way compared to the other writers. It's, it's really quite short a few sentences really the entire miracle compared to say John's Gospel where John expands on this fairly significantly but Luke gives us what we need to understand about that and he uses it in a sense as a bridge between the passage just before and the passage immediately following. And the whole point of Luke's Gospel is to prove to a man by the name of Theophilus and anyone who would read this Gospel following him that Jesus Christ is none other than God in human flesh. He's not just a a great teacher. He wasn't just a, a great humanitarian. He wasn't some sort of a prophet, just a prophet at least. He was none other than deity in human flesh. And Luke in a very methodical way has been making that case from verse 1 of chapter 1 all the way to where we are in Luke chapter 9 in the middle And he's been showing us progressively more and more about who Jesus is And more and more layers of evidence just one on top of the other That continue to just nail home the, the, the issue here that you cannot write Jesus off as just a good man that you either bow before him as God, or you write him off as a fool. There's really no in between. And I don't know that there's a more vivid piece of evidence that he gives us in this gospel, apart again from the resurrection, than this miracle that takes place on this day. If you've read this, or you were with us last week, then you'll recall that Jesus had just previously sent his disciples out for the very first time on their first mission trip. If you will, if they were teachers, they'd be doing their student teaching for a couple of weeks. And they'd been watching and observing and listening to him. And he said, it's time for you to go from being observers and listeners to being active participants. And so he launched them out to, in pairs of two for a period of time into all over the region of Galilee to do ministry on their own, and he empowered them uniquely to be able to do that, to be able to preach, to be able to teach, to be able to do miracles, to be able to cast out demons, to do really essentially everything that he had been doing. He empowered them to do it, and he launched them to do that, and he said, go, don't take extra food, don't take extra clothes, don't take anything. I am gonna be your sufficient supply every moment that you go. You go and trust me and see if I don't prove myself faithful to you. And they went, and they did just that thing. Luke doesn't tell us what happens on the trip. He just reports to us that they made it to the end of the trip, and they come back to Jesus. And when they do, they're reporting with great excitement all the things that had happened on their trip, To Jesus and they're debriefing the the uh, student teaching if you will and the crowds are now pressing in like they do everywhere Jesus goes so Jesus puts them in a boat and he heads out to cross the Sea of Galilee for some time of rest and for some time to be able to debrief they get to the other side and instead of a retreat what they end up with is the same crowd that's now made its way around the sea and is still pressing in on them yet again and Jesus the ever compassionate Savior isn't perturbed by the whole series of events. He, he spends the day healing them and welcoming them and caring for them and ministering to their needs and loving them. Really an entire day's worth of ministry on top of the sheer exhaustion of what had been going on in the days just previous to this. As the day begins to wear on and Jesus is doing all of this, the disciples are watching the sun kind of, you know, crest the sky and they're putting two and two together and they're realizing that a problem is on the horizon, that there's this massive sea of people and they're in a a sort of a deserted sort of remote place where there's no uh, super Walmart nearby and people are going to start getting hungry and there's no restaurants, no fast food, there's no place to go where they can just take a dinner break and everybody can go get a meal. So they're anticipating the problem. And so they approach Jesus and they, they say to Jesus, Jesus, there's a problem, don't know if you've noticed it, but all these people are gonna get hungry pretty fast. And, and you know we, we've been uh, assessing the situation and we're great problem solvers, you see, we wanna help the ministry here. And so we've come to a conclusion and it's, you know, problem-solving apostle style, and here is their problem-solving. Tell these people to get lost. Jesus, you just need to cut it off. You've done all you can do. We're all flat, dead tired, and uh, this is getting ready to be a problem. So here's the solution, Jesus, in case you haven't thought about this already, just tell these people to hit the road. Tell them to, to beat it. Tell them to go find their own lodging. Tell them to go find their own food. This is not our problem. This is their problem. We can't do anything about this. The only thing that these men can see is that there's a problem and that they don't have in their own hands sufficient resources to solve the problem. And so we built a principle on that last week and the principle was just simply this, that when faced with pressing, challenging problems, we often you know focus on our lack instead of his sufficiency and that's precisely what they were doing all they could see was what they didn't have all the while oblivious to the fact that the Son of God was literally doing miracles all around them well you know the story and that was not nearly a sufficient solution for Christ he says men I've got another solution for this problem let me show you problem solving Jesus style And here's the plan. Verse 13, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Okay, man, I hear you. You want the crowd to get lost. Let me tell you another plan. They don't need to go anywhere. Here's the plan. You feed them. And if you were to to, to sort of capture it in the original language, it's a very emphatic sort of a command here. It, it, It would be like repeating the word you. He says very emphatically, they don't need to go away. You, you go feed them. Men, it's not somebody else's problem. This is your problem, and not only is it your problem, it's your responsibility. Jesus is all about teaching these men, you are no longer observers. You are no longer passive listeners. You are called into the service of my kingdom, and you are meant to be active participants. This isn't someone else's problem. This is your problem. Now, if we were to look at John's Gospel, we would know that Jesus has already had a previous conversation with Philip. And he knows what he's gonna do already. Just for reference, John chapter six, verses five and six. John records this, he says, lifting his eyes up, or lifting up his eyes, then, and seeing the large crowd that was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we gonna buy bread so that these people might eat? Now, Philip has got a private side conversation with Jesus, and Jesus sees the problem well before the disciples do probably he's the one who planted it with them. with Philip Philip where do you think we're going to go get food for all these people he said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do don't you find some irony in that he knew what he was going to do but he doesn't disclose to Philip what he's going to do why is that because it's school time These men had just returned from this incredible ministry sort of outing that they'd had. They had come having seen God do miracles really through them, physically, literally do miracles through them. They had seen people's lives changed by the message that they were preaching and proclaiming. They were on cloud nine, and perhaps even maybe a little bit proud. And Jesus wants to remind them in a very clear and emphatic way who the source of their power is, where their power comes from, he wants to remind him in a very vivid way that apart from him, they are spiritually impotent. They have no power to do anything, at least in their own strength. And perhaps, just perhaps, he wants to protect him here from the temptation to a little bit of ministerial pride. And so what's the best way to do that? Tell them to go do something that they have absolutely no ability to go do. And then let the chips fall where they may. And so Jesus says, you, you, you go feed them. And he puts them in a corner. What do you do? Jesus just told you to go feed all these people. Walmart hasn't appeared. Verse 13, they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. And when you hear that, you should hear extreme sarcasm because they know that there are two problems. One is a uh, a sort of a cost problem. This would cost, we're told in Mark's Gospel, they said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages, are we to go and spend that much on bread for these people to eat? Jesus, you're telling us to go feed them, that would take eight months of wages. We don't have that. Not only do they have a cost problem, but they have supply chain issues as well. Where can we go to buy enough food for this crowd? We're talking a crowd upward of likely 10 to 12, maybe even 15,000 people. Where do you go to buy bread for that many people? Jesus, what are you talking about? You want us to do what? It is absolutely, completely impossible. All we can scrounge up are these five little pita bread cakes and two little fish and we got those from a kid. It's not even enough for us. Compared to the need, what they had might as well have been nothing. Can you sense their desperation? Can you hear in their voices the the sheer panic that Christ has induced in them when he tells them to go feed this crowd? He's told them to go do something, and they know they cannot do it. They know that even if they attempt it, they will surely fail. Where would you even start? And they're feeling that pressure, and that is exactly where Jesus wants them. Exactly. This is the same Jesus who would say later in John chapter 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Say this last part with me, would you? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Well, if they didn't understand it before, he's just told them to do something that they know they can't do. So what does Jesus do? He lets them struggle through it for a few minutes, and then he says to them this. Have them go sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so. And had them all sit down. Now, Luke doesn't explain to us why Jesus wants them in this configuration. Why groups of 50? We don't know. But to the disciples' credit, what do they do? Well, they did it. They went to the crowd and started sorting out these thousands of people and sitting them in groups of 50, probably separating the men from the ladies, as was Jewish uh, sort of custom for meals. But what would you tell the people as you're seating them in groups of 50? Think about that. What do you tell them? Hey, I'd like you, 50, to come sit over here. Well, why do you want us to sit over here? Why are we sitting in groups of 50? How do you answer that question? I don't know. Jesus said, sit in groups of 50, so we're sitting in groups of 50. You gonna feed us? I don't know. Verse 16, Luke says this, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing over them. He looks to these men and he says, men, you figured out you can't do anything about this problem at this point great. Bring what food you have to me. Whatever little bit you've got, bring it to me. I'm going to teach you a new equation of mathematics. Your little in my hand equals a lot. Now that you've come to the very end of yourselves, now that you're at the very end of your own rope, let me remind you who I am. Matthew records this in verse 26 of chapter 19. He says, Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible. This is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And it introduces to us another principle we need to capture. And it's simply this. Even the smallest offering, with the blessing and the power of Christ, can meet the greatest need. Can you capture that for a moment in your mind? Even the smallest offering with the blessing and power of Christ can meet the greatest need. And the flip side of that is true as well. The greatest human offering without the blessing and power of Christ will be utterly insufficient to meet even the smallest need. There's a principle that every Christian better get clear in their head. You go out and try to operate in your own power and meet spiritual needs and your own human strength and you'll fall flat on your face. But you take what little bit that you have that's insufficient and you offer it to Christ and you ask him to bless it and you ask him to use it for his glory and it's remarkable what he'll do. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said these words. He understood this principle. He said, truly he who writes this comment has often felt as if he had neither loaf nor fish. And yet for some 40 years and more, he's been a full-handed waiter at the king's great banquet. What did Moses have when God said, Moses, you go talk to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go? He had a staff in his hand. That's about it. It was all he needed. What did David have when it was time to face off against a, a giant, Goliath? He had a sling and a few small stones, but with the blessing and the power of God, they became missiles that took out a giant. What, do you, what, what, what can you do for Jesus with the little bit that you have? Absolutely nothing at all. But God's given you something that you can that you can use that that if you offer it to Him with His power and His blessing can be remarkably effective at meeting spiritual needs. You ever look at yourself and you say, yeah, "I'm not very much. I don't. I, I'm not very adequate. I I don't have a lot of skills. I don't have a lot of talents. I I don't have great education. I I don't understand all that there is to know about the Bible. I'm not a theologian. I'm scared of public speaking. Whatever it is that." you think about when you think about your own self and what you have to offer the kingdom of God. Listen to me, my friend. Whatever you have to offer, it's enough. It's not enough by itself, but if you take it and you offer it to Christ and you say, Christ, this is what I've got. I see the needs for your kingdom and I wanna be used for your glory. I'm completely insufficient for the task, but I have this little bit that I've got and I'm gonna give it to you and whatever you wanna do with it, if you'll bless it, if you'll take it and you'll transform it by your power, I believe you can take this little thing that I've got and help me Lord, use me to make a difference for your kingdom. He'll do it, he'll do it. He's done it time and time and time and time again throughout the history of the church. The challenge is most of us don't really trust God to do what he says he'll do. And we obsessively look at our own lack instead of offering what we do have. We're perpetually waiting for some time to come when we'll feel adequate and that time never comes. Instead of being on the field playing the game, we're sitting on the bench. Anybody who recognizes his or her spiritual impotence and offers it to Christ, places it in his hands, will find that Christ can do remarkable things. Phil Riken said this, he said, The feeding of the 5,000 reminds us not to forget that God is not limited by our inadequacies. Did you hear that? God is not limited by our inadequacies. Rather, our very limitations can display the glory and the grace of Jesus whenever he does what we are unable to do. His power is made perfect in our weakness. Luke tells us that he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. So Jesus takes these few little loaves and these couple of fish and he looks to heaven and he prays and he gives thanks to his heavenly father and he breaks them and he begins to give them to the disciples. He hands it to them and he says now go. I don't know what they were thinking at that moment. But they went. They obeyed. Now I want you to pause for a moment and think about all the different ways God could have addressed this problem. There's a thousand ways that he could have addressed a hungry crowd, right? He could have done all sorts of things. He could have just instantly satisfied everybody's hunger, right? Oh, hungry people, filled people. They're good. Keep preach on, right? That's one I wish I could do on Sunday morning. (laughs) Come to think of it. Hungry people, full people, preach on. I pray about that one. He could have done that. He could have done that. He could just instantly, okay, they're not hungry anymore. Keep moving. He could have instantly made food fall from the sky. That isn't actually foreign to him. Right? Did something quite similar. Quite often in the Old Testament, manna. He could have done that again. It's not an accident that he does this the way he does it. He wants to make a point. And here's the point. The point is this, that Christ primarily uses people to accomplish his plans. He doesn't ordinarily do things unilaterally and miraculously apart from people. Normally, he uses people to accomplish his plans in the world. And he often does that by challenging them to do things that they know that they can't do by themselves. And when they offer him their own insufficiency and they step out in faith, he works a miracle through them. And these disciples need to see him do that. Abraham, I want you to pick up all your stuff and your family and I want you to set out to a land that I'll show you later. Think about it for a moment. Although God is perfectly able to do his work without us and without any of our our, our resources, he chooses to use us and our meager resources to magnify his glory and his power you realize God could do whatever he wants without us? He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need any of our resources. He can do things unilaterally anytime he wants to. But he chooses ordinarily to use ordinary people like you and like me to accomplish remarkable things by calling us to do things that we're uncomfortable with, by calling us to step out in faith in ways that we haven't before, to look at our own resources and feel that sense of inadequacy, and to look to him and say, okay, God, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I have what I need, but I'm going to go because you've called me, and I'm going to wait and watch and see what happens. And over and over and over again, he proves himself faithful. These men need to learn this because he's going to be crucified, and he's going to be buried, and he's going to be resurrected, and he's going to ascend to the Father. And they're going to be called to establish the church and to take the gospel into everywhere. And they need to understand this principle. So he teaches it in a very vivid sort of a way. One author said this. He said, I'm convinced that the Lord did the miracle that way, to teach the disciples that his method for meeting the needs of the lost world is through people. Christ meets the needs of people through people. And note carefully the kind of people he uses. Inadequate people. Inadequate people. People who don't feel worthy. People who don't feel well equipped. God reaches people by using other people ordinarily. Verse 17, we're told this, and they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces. So you gotta imagine how this plays out. Jesus breaks this, this stuff, gives thanks for it, hands it to them, gives them enough. Somehow, there's a miracle that takes place immediately, right? He gives them 12 men enough to go out and to, to take their first load. How many trips do you think it took to get to 12 to 15,000 people with 12 men. So every time he sends them out, they go distribute whatever it is that they have and they come back to Jesus only to find what? That he's got enough more to fill up another basket. And so they take that and then they go and distribute that and then they come back only to find that there's more. Every single time they come back empty handed, he fills them up and sends them on their way. Can you imagine the looks on their faces? as this is going on? Can you imagine them looking at one another across the way? Like, I don't know, what's happening? Can you imagine the joy and the thrill and the excitement of the moment to realize that Christ is working a miracle and you're right in the middle of it? That's where they were. Their fear had turned to exhilaration. Alexander McLaren said this, the pieces grew under his touch and the disciples always found his hands full when they came back with their own empty. What a beautiful picture. They realized something very, very clearly. And that's this, that Jesus' provision is completely and utterly sufficient that what he offers and what he has is always enough for the moment. He never comes up short. And on this day, trip after trip after trip after trip until every one of those people is completely filled. It's not like everybody just got a little piece of bread. That would have been a miracle in itself, wouldn't it? If everybody in that crowd just got a piece of bread to eat and just a snack to hold them over, keep them from being really hangry and rioting. But they all got a full belly's worth of food. These guys must have been beat when that was over, right? Running back and forth to feed all those people? You ever served at a banquet? What about one with ten to 15,000 people? Well, this whole thing is a parable of ministry, isn't it? Warren Rearsby said this the miracle took place in his hands, not theirs. For whatever we give to him, he can bless and multiply. And this is what I wanted you to catch. We are not manufacturers. We're only what? Distributors. That is a great thought. At the end of the day, we're not the manufacturers. We're just the distributors. That's what the disciples were on this day. They didn't make anything. They just carried it to the people who needed it. And that really is a parable for all ministry. If you're a person who's ministering in the name of Christ, for the kingdom of God in the world around you, you and I are not responsible for being manufacturers. He's the manufacturer, we're the distributors. We just take from him what he's got and we deliver it to the people. And every time we come back to him empty handed and he fills us up and we take it, we just never run out. I remember thinking early on when I became a lead pastor a long time ago, I might be preaching about 20 years like if if the Lord lets me do this for a long time like, will I run out of stuff to say well here I am I haven't run out of anything to say because for all these years every time I come back to the Lord empty handed he just gives me something to to bring to you every Sunday I don't have to make it I'm not the manufacturer I'm just a distributor that's it and anybody who does ministry that's what we do we're, 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 we're not the provider, Jesus is the provider. We're not the chefs, we're the, we're the waiters, right? We just take from him and we deliver it to the people. And this is an important concept for anybody who's gonna do ministry of any sort. At the end of the day, we're not responsible for creating the content, we just deliver it to the people who need it. When we get confused about that, it's a disaster. And where there's confusion and chaos in the broader Christian world, it often comes because somebody somewhere in visible leadership has become very confused about that and begun to think that they're the producer or the manufacturer and not the distributor. And they're creating their own content, and it's false. We're told that there was enough leftovers. <laughs> How many? How many basketful? Twelve. Twelve. How many disciples? Twelve. Irony? Nope. Precision. They didn't even have enough for themselves to start with. They fed thousands of people and have more than enough for themselves left over at the end. His provision was not simply enough. It was abundant. It was abundant. He didn't just stop it enough. He just overkilled it. So there's no question. And here's a final sort of principle for you. Not only is Christ sufficient, but he satisfies. He satisfies. Satisfies. That word is, is, is colorful to me. There's a difference between sufficiency and satisfaction. I leave this afternoon to go, To San Diego for a couple days of military work, and I've done military stuff, not like this office work this week, but in the past, I've been in places where I've had to eat these things called MREs. Have you ever heard of an MRE? It's a meal ready to eat. Um, They are sufficient, but they do not satisfy. (laughs) They constipate, is what they do, (laughs) but they are not satisfying. I'm sorry, I, could, I that shouldn't have said that. But Christ satisfies. There's a difference between having enough and being satisfied. Getting your fill, right? And that word satisfy is a sense of enjoyment and pleasure, isn't it? Yeah? It's a word that's used about heaven, by the way. In heaven, we don't have just a sufficient supply, but we find ourselves in every longing of our hearts satisfied. We're just drifting along on clouds, bored out of our heads. We find satisfaction. Unlike anything this world has to offer. He's more than enough, isn't he? And it all comes back to Jesus and understanding who he is. That he is sovereign and he is sufficient. And it was the lesson that these men needed to learn. And so we taught them in a very, very vivid way. About 10 years ago, I uh, ran across a video clip um, that I'm going to show you this morning. If you're a racing fan, then you know who Jeff Gordon is. Um, Jeff Gordon is a NASCAR racer, if you don't know who that is. And about 10 years ago or so, there was a Pepsi Max commercial. There was a promotional campaign that they were doing. And they, they pulled a prank on this car dealer, this car salesman. They had Jeff Gordon go uh, they they dressed him up and put him in in uh, disguise and send him to a local car dealership to uh, test drive a car and um, I'm going to show you what that looks like here in a moment but I'm gonna preface it by saying this know that the poor car salesman in this clip is scared out of his ever-loving mind and therefore they have to bleep out several things that he says along the way If you are a phenomenal lip reader, you'll read words that you probably would never say, except maybe if you were in his situation. So I just give you that preface to know there's some bleepage going on here. But I want you to see this for a very clear reason. One, it's funny, but there's a point to it. And listen, you need to catch the very last thing that the man, that the salesman says before the clip ends, okay? So don't tune out before it ends. Catch the last thing he says. All right, show it to Cena. Oh, wow. Yeah. Nice and easy. We'll just head on out and whenever you're ready. You guys ready? hear it? Are oh, you ready to go ahead and, yeah. and drive? Okay, yeah, sure. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, a little more than I'm used to. Yeah. It's got some power, so just get a feel for it. Okay. He's off, just look. He's off. So I was thinking a little more age on me, some wrinkles, a little dorky, maybe some facial hair. just somebody that I can pull off a a fun prank with. (laughs) Let's Let's go have some fun. My good friends at Pepsi Max have hooked us up with this cool cam cam. So these are the glasses cam to show you everything that I see. How you doing? Hello mike steve nice to meet you mike i saw you sort of gravitated towards the camaro you thinking about getting one? Oh no 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 this this way too much car for me i'm well it's a lot of power but they've designed it to be very safe i don't know if i can handle it I, i've never driven anything like this before well I, I tell you what i think a way to really make you feel comfortable would be to put you behind the wheel you're good <laughs> what are you driving now oh just a minivan oh yeah uh, what, what am You're I not signing sir? Sure? Sure? It's, it's just a checkout sheet for a test drive. You're not obligated to anything. It's just so we know who's out. Let's go give it a drive. Getting a little nervous. No, I'll be right there beside you. There are your keys, sir. Thank you, Steve. But you'll have to unlock it, Mike. Oh, yeah. thank you. There we go. Oh yeah, what a car! Mm-hmm. Well, we better buckle up. Yeah, good call. Power, power door locks, standard of course. You are liable for any damages to the vehicle, so please stop the car. And slow, or at least slow down. Slow down. Slow down. You can't go through that gate, Mike. Stop. card. You're liable for it if you wreck it. What do you mean? I'm calling uh, the cops. No, no. You don't understand. It's not what you think. It's not what cops. you think. No, it's just a prank. We are just having fun. Look, this is a camera. Here's a camera. There's cameras. Look. It was all just fun. Look. I'm Jeff Gordon. <laughs> Sorry, man. Oh. Sorry. Wanna <laughs> do it again? Yeah, let's do it again! Did you hear what he said? What did he say at the end? Can we do it again? Now that poor man, I don't know, I didn't have a heart attack. <clears throat> Let me ask you this question. Was the salesman's reaction during the ride rational? Was it rational? I think it was rational. I think so too. Were his fears justified? His fears were only justified so long as he didn't know who was driving, Right? Was he, ever in actually, was he ever actually in any real danger? He wasn't in any real danger, was he? Mm-mm. He only thought he was. And the moment he realized who was driving, what happened? What happened to his fear? It was gone. It was immediately gone. His entire perspective on that experience was completely transformed simply by the realization who was behind the wheel. He went from a, 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 a feeling of abject terror to the exhilarating sense of adventure. From I'm going to die to can we do it again? Let me ask you a serious question this morning. When are you and I going to stop living like there's a reckless fool behind the wheel of our lives. Because we respond in life just like that man did, as though our lives are being driven by a reckless fool who doesn't know what he's doing. I'm convinced that when we come to the realization that Jesus Christ is both sovereign and sufficient, and he is behind the wheel, that our fears and our anxieties are not rational and they are not founded because the God of the universe is in control why is it that we practically live as though he's semi-competent and semi-knowing and semi-faithful as though every time life takes a hard turn in a direction we didn't anticipate that we think we're gonna die. Understanding who Christ is should change everything about how we respond to the circumstances in our life that give us legitimate opportunities to be afraid and to be anxious. But a clear view of Christ should change how we respond. How many of us live lives gripped by constant fear and anxiety when we could be living with a sheer sense of exhilaration and adventure? Because the king of the universe is at the wheel. It brings us all the way back to who is this Jesus, doesn't it? He's God in human flesh. He's the one who can create matter from nothing. That's what he did in this miracle he made something, a lot of something, from absolutely nothing. He's the one who provides for his people. He's the one whose provision is abundant and satisfying, who satisfies everybody who sits down to eat at his table. Well, he's sufficient to satisfy not just your physical needs, but the longing of your soul. John connects this miracle to the provision of manna in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3 says something to us about that miracle. It says this, And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, for a reason. And here's the reason. Not that your bellies might be full, particularly, but that he might make known to you that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord why did God provide manna from heaven to the Israelites in the Old Testament was it to fill their bellies well yes there was a practical piece to it but there was something far more significant it was to point them to his sufficiency in their life and it's the very same thing Christ is doing here with these men and for you trying to show you that he's sufficient that you don't have to live in fear that anybody who has a, a longing and, and hungry soul can come and pull up to his table and be fed and be filled and be satisfied. J.C. Ryle said this, the heart of man can never be satisfied with the things of this world. It is always empty and hungry and thirsty and dissatisfied until it comes to Christ. If you're here this morning, and that's the story of your life, hungry, thirsty, dissatisfied, empty. That's all the world can provide to you. It doesn't matter which direction you turn. It doesn't matter which person or which self-appointed prophet. That's all you'll ever find until you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you pull up at his table, and it's only there that you'll find satisfaction because he's God. He's God. He's God. He's the God who, who can make bread out of nothing, who can make fish out of nothing, who can provide anything that you need. He's the God who was, was and is and always will be. He's the God who is sovereign over every circumstance of your life, who satisfies your every longing in a way that only he can. Why will you not run to him this morning? He's for you. He's with you. Why be hungry when you can be filled? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there are people in this room who you've called to serve in your kingdom and they feel inadequate and they feel unprepared, unqualified, and that's precisely where you want them. Lord, would you show yourself to them today to be the kind of God who takes people just like them and does remarkable things? Would you show yourself to them this morning? Would you give them the faith to step out and obey you and to follow you even if it's uncomfortable and even if it's hard and even if they haven't done something before, even if they don't know how it's gonna turn out, would you help them to just take that next step of faith and to see, to test and see if you're not for them? Would you drive them off of the sidelines onto the field? Whether it's to teach a class or to serve in a ministry field, or to go on a mission trip or to teach a Sunday school class or to serve in a local mission project whatever it is you use people to reach people and there's a room full of people here so God would you show us show us your son Jesus this morning show us him in all of his glory and all of his power and all of his splendor and all of his wisdom and all of his knowledge that in seeing him, our fears and our anxieties may be obliterated. And we might be able to leave this place this morning facing life with joy, with excitement, with a sense of true exhilaration and adventure because we know the God of the universe who is for us is behind the wheel of our lives and we don't have to live in fear. Do that work in us this morning by your spirit, we pray for your glory and that alone, amen.